we're staring down the the barrel of, of two major challenges coming our way: continued warming from global scale climate change and continued warming from urbanization, the urban heat island effect. But we do a really abysmal job, and this is across the whole country, at getting those different groups and those different plans to actually talk to each other and work together. There's people that are focused on these things in all of those areas, but sometimes we're basically working against each other. Heat doesn't discriminate if you are hiking. However, really does discriminate toward people that low income, live in poverty, are homeless. Many people live in their cars. They don't have place to live. So I think the social aspect in our community has to be addressed. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford. First and foremost, everyone here at Vitalist is thinking about every one of you. Wash up mask up, maintain social distancing, please, and keep a heads up for your fellow Arizonans. As COVID-19 cases are increasing significantly in our state, so are our temperatures, and sadly, our wildfires. COVID didn't respond to heat, but our natural resources, our built environments, and our health and well-being most certainly do. Heat is a major challenge for Arizona. We should continuously be talking, innovating, and iterating on it which is why today we're launching part one of our first two-part dialogue on heat. In two weeks' time, we'll be talking about actions being taken by cities and organizations focused on our most vulnerable populations. But first, today, we're talking with three experts about how we should more deeply understand the issues. After all, big challenges are best understood when we take them apart, understand their components, engage authentically with community members, and uncover root causes that affect health and well-being. So with that simple but challenging agenda in mind, let's get to it. It's time to talk about coalitions, systems, governments, planning, airports, air conditioning, bus stops, communities, and health as things heat up for Arizona in the summer of 2020. Today we have three fantastic guests to talk to you about heat. We have Viola Barisha who's a senior epidemiologist at Maricopa County Department of Public Health. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, John, for having us here. Thank you for being here. And we also have Mr. David Handula from Arizona State University. He's an assistant professor at the School of Geographic Sciences and Urban Planning. David, how are you? John, doing great. Thanks for facilitating the space to have this conversation. Thank you for joining us. And from the University of Arizona, no fighting, please. Between universities, mm-hmm. we have Lad Keith, assistant professor of planning and sustainable built environments. Lad, how are you? Good. Thanks for having us. I look forward to the conversation. Lad, there's this thing called the urban heat island effect. What is it and why is it important to understand? The urban heat island is the idea that the way that we build our cities and operate them creates a hotter environment than the surrounding countryside and kind of rural areas. A lot of the research was originally done in more temperate climates. And so actually in places like Phoenix and the desert, not so much an island as hot spots and cooler spots because some of our desert areas are less vegetated too. And we use a lot of irrigated aquifer water to create vegetated areas in the city, which makes them sometimes cooler than the surrounding countryside. But the general idea is the way that we build our cities traps and creates more heat than the surrounding areas and certainly puts vulnerable populations at higher risk. David, I used to work with some folks in California who told me that in the LA basin, There are 29 different climate zones. Is Arizona like that? 
LA is complicated climatically and geographically because of all of the topography. There are high places, low places, places that are near the ocean, places that are farther from the ocean. And we're missing a lot of those ingredients for the urban heat recipe here in Phoenix. But we do have a lot of variability in our climate conditions as well, as Lad mentioned. Adjacent neighborhoods could have several degrees Fahrenheit of difference in air temperature between them, depending on the prevailing weather conditions or so on. But it really can be a different experience as one moves around the city from neighborhood to neighborhood for the factors that Lad mentioned. VLC, you're with the county. When you think about heat in Maricopa County, how do you think about some of the things David was just talking about, about the variability between neighborhoods and what that means to people's health and well-being? We are very preoccupied with the health of people where they live. We deal with extreme heat due to urban heat island. At different regions, especially the ones we have vulnerable populations that they live in different parts of the city, they are probably different degrees of temperatures that they are in those areas. We're talking about city blocks that could be 125 to 160 degrees in the, in the height of the summer afternoons, correct? You know, when we look at images of the land surface that are measured from satellites or maybe taken from a helicopter with a thermal camera, we could see differences on the order of magnitude that you're talking about, 10s, 20s, 30s, 40 degree Fahrenheit difference in the, in the temperature of the surface. And you can see it clear as day if we have a place where there's old pavement, which is degraded in color, it's become a little lighter. That turns out to be a lot cooler than a fresh coat of dark pavement to really pop on these very impressive images that we look at of the surface temperature patterns in the city. It's really striking. Lad, David just brought up cooling pavement, which the city of Phoenix is starting to test. There was just an article about it last week. Talk about some of those things, Lad, that are driving this need for something like cooling pavement. Extreme heat not only impacts health, like Dave and Bielsa have mentioned, but we also want to think through the impact on our urban ecology. So we spend a lot of money on landscaping in the mm -hmm. desert and all of those plants that we maintain and plants cost a lot of money. And as it gets hotter, those plants have a degraded viability in that heat as well. I would also mention just the urban infrastructure and the amount of money that we spend on urban infrastructure. And so a dramatic example is the way that we design our airports tend to be like one of the hottest spots in the Southwest. Mm -hmm. Things like airplanes dramatically can't take off after a certain amount of heat because they're not engineered safely to take off from the runway. But not just things like the airport example, but also how we design our whole transportation corridors. So that could be just the streets themselves or the bus stops or the light rail stops or whatever they may be. And we're spending millions and millions of dollars on these urban infrastructure investments. And they contribute to the urban heat island effect, certainly, but they're also heavily impacted by the heat and just want to make sure that we put our money efficiently and correctly into those things. A really important point that Lad is making when we think about things in the city, whether they're big things like airports or light rail systems or small things like your steering wheel or your rear view mirror in your car, almost everything that we touch and interact with deteriorates when it's exposed to the elements. And here our elements are heat and sun. Anything we can do that can bring down that heat burden, both on the people as well as all the things that we, we deal with, can make life a whole lot better. Were we just stupid when we built cities this way? Or did we not understand the idea of the urban heat island effect before and, and it's new to us now? I think it's a continuing process of discovery. I'd say it's the latter more so than the former. This is something we've known about scientifically for more than 150 years now. And there's evidence that we've understood this even, even going farther back in time. Anytime we congregate people together for any reason, it's warmer there than it is where we don't have a congregation of people. Even in the absence of buildings, transportation systems, and so on. You know when you're in a clump of people it gets a little warm in that clump of people. And, and we're talking about the urban heat island. We're talking about that phenomenon on a much larger scale. 
we're continuing to give attention to environmental issues like air quality, like urban heat, as we've figured out some other basic necessities. For example, people benefit tremendously from having roads. It was not very convenient to get around cities in the absence of roads. It was difficult to live here in Phoenix in the absence of buildings and air conditioning systems. So once we figured out some of those basic pieces, now we're starting to ask the question, okay, what are the the trade-offs of having these conveniences, roads, buildings, uh, air conditioning systems, and how can we offset or minimize those trade-offs? So I don't think that we were totally ignorant to the issues, but now I think we have some of the basic functionality pretty well addressed in many parts of many of our cities, but not completely. Now we're starting to ask deeper and better questions about environmental issues. Going back to the cooling pavement idea, you're talking about something that costs more than regular pavement. How do we justify cost in terms of benefit? For any of these cooling technologies, we're still learning as a scientific community uh, the benefit side, let alone the cost side, which you talked about. Something like a cool pavement or a reflective pavement could lower air temperature in cities, could lower surface temperature in certain places. But there are also some concerns that have emerged from piloting work in Los Angeles that the experience of a person walking on or near one of these reflective pavements might actually be worse. You might feel hotter because all of this sunlight is now reflected into your body instead of absorbed into the ground. So we're still thinking about how to measure and understand those trade-offs in terms of benefits. And as we continue to build that evidence base, I think that'll help the cost-benefit equation that you're talking about. What I'm really encouraged by, Phoenix, Los Angeles, and other cities, is this willingness to experiment and willingness to experiment in the real world, not in a laboratory setting, in real neighborhoods where real people are going to be able to provide real feedback about how they feel about these different strategies we're trying. Fielsa, epidemiologically speaking, talk about the impact of heat in Maricopa County and how it's being measured and what we're seeing. So in Maricopa County, we have been doing heat surveillance since 2006, looking at the health of people and who is being affected, how they are being affected. It's interesting that from 2006, including 2019, we had 1,491 confirmed heat-associated deaths which is increasing over the years. For example, we used to say prior to 2015 that less than 100 people on average, they die in Maricopa County. And now the last four years, we have been talking about the average of 179 cases every year. So it seems like temperatures are increasing in the city, especially as a result of urban heat island. So we have communities that they are really suffering. Our surveillance system has been initiated in 2006. We have been looking into cases reported. We work with medical examiner and we get their reports and every case is reported. We look at the death databases to identify cases and then Other sources like hospital discharge data, looking at our people that they are being seen at emergency departments. And just to let you know that the number of people looking for help is increasing. It went from 2,000 yearly to 2,700. It's increasing. Looking for what kinds of help? They are coming with different types of heat illness. The numbers that Vilsa mentions are troubling, and I think we're going to talk about how to 
flatten that curve in addition to the other curves we're trying to flatten these days. But I also want to acknowledge, Vils is too humble to point out that surveillance system she's talking about that exists here in Maricopa County is among the leading models anywhere in the world for tracking the types of impacts of heat on public health. And I think we, we heard Vils say that they instituted the system in 2006. Lad is going to tell us a little bit about what he's learned on how different jurisdictions all around the country are thinking about and managing heat from a governance perspective. And here we have a really good example of a government system, the county health department, responding and changing their procedures in response to a problem that they see in the community. 2005 was a horrible year for heat-related deaths. A lot of stories in the news and the county health department saw this problem and recognized they had an opportunity to add capacity to how we're understanding that this problem is materializing. The data that they produce are invaluable in helping us really diagnose the nature of the problem here. So I wanted to thank the county health department for that effort. It is a national model that we should be proud of. When unfortunately a person dies, there are various streams of data that are available. And here in Maricopa County, we have a system set up that monitors the information coming in those data streams. And when a case is suspected of being related to, caused by, associated with heat, those cases undergo additional rigorous review. So in this particular case, it's a data stream that's being monitored, not people, not their living rooms, anything like that. We're watching the data stream very closely. Lad, you work on sustainable built environments. You also have had a seat at the table with a developer group called the Urban Land Institute. You've helped to produce a report called Scorched. Talk about how you're working with businesses, developers, governments, to try and create more sustainable built environments. Dave mentioned before that we've known about the urban heat island effect for over 100 years. It was documented for the first time as far back as 1818. Something that surprises people, though, when you start talking about extreme heat and the urban heat island is that it's only recently that we've really started seriously looking at it from kind of a built environments perspective. And so my colleague Sarah Miro and myself did a review of urban planning papers on extreme heat and found that 60% of those papers were written in the last five years. So you can imagine it's kind of coming to the forefront, certainly in the public health world that's been recognizing the impacts for a while, but on the built environment side, it's a very recent development. And I think a lot of that's driven by the concerns over climate change and how that's kind of strengthening the things that we're seeing from the urban heat island effect. And then so those heat waves are getting longer, they're more frequent, and the nighttime temperatures, importantly, are being raised too, which has a big impact on people's health if they can't cool off at night. So the Urban Land Institute last year in the summer released a scorched report, which is aimed towards real estate developers and policymakers at the city level. And it was really one of the first times that the issue kind of came to national attention as far as how we can design and plan cities better to both mitigate extreme heat and also increase our resilience to it. And again, kind of focusing on those vulnerable populations that are most at risk. And what has been the response to that report? What kinds of actions are coming forward? We had a phenomenal response. I think we had a webinar upon its release, and it was one of the highest attended environmentally focused webinars the Urban Land Institute ever had. Extreme heat is one of those invisible risks where you can't see it. And for a lot of the population that has access to air conditioning and has maybe a personal automobile that they use to get around, Even in a place like Phoenix, it may affect some of your daily habits, but you don't feel impacted by it in the same way that if you don't have air conditioning or you have to walk to work or you have to use the bus system where it truly becomes a risk that you notice. And so I think it's one of those things that when we started to talk to developers and policymakers about it and show them the impacts that are being more documented more frequently and with better evidence now, like Dave had mentioned before, Maricopa County is leading in this way for kind of documenting the health impacts of heat. And so for the real estate developers, particularly for them to see 
that they could actually help mitigate heat by designing their projects a little bit differently. And then we also made a strong case that they can actually increase the revenue and they can actually make more money from these developments if they make them more attractive for people kind of as these places continue to get hotter. So kind of both on the societal benefit side and then also on the bottom line side, there's a strong economic case to be made to develop these future built environments to be more heat resilient. How many times during a webinar on this report or during the development of this report did you get feedback about, well, it has to quote unquote pencil out? Oh, always. <laughs> every every project in the private sector has to pencil out. And I think the important thing is there are small tweaks that we can do to the built environment and the way that things are designed that don't add a lot to the overall cost of a project. And even these small tweaks over time will add up to be quite a lot for mitigating urban heat. One thing to think about is our population of the United States right now is 330 million people about. And by 2100, which is the metric people look at a lot of times for what the projected climate change will be in the future, we'll add over 100 million people is what the demographic forecasts are. And those 100 million people are going to have to live, work, play, eat, shop at all types of new places that have never even been developed yet. And so I think we still have a lot of growth to see in this country. And it's really important to take advantage of that opportunity to make sure that we correct some of the mistakes that we've made in the past. And just to add on this idea of population growth, a lot of the fastest growing regions in the United States are in the Sun Belt. They're in our hot places. So where this growth is occurring is going to be right at the epicenter of the warming challenges that Lad is discussing. The lad was the first one to bring up climate change. How do we think about this existential threat of climate change and what will it do to us? They're staring down the, the barrel of, of two major challenges coming our way, continued warming from global scale climate change and continued warming from urbanization, the urban heat island effect. And, and what we don't know yet is which of those will be more important as a driver of temperatures in, in this region or any region moving forward. It depends on how we develop. It depends on global climate policy. There's a lot of uncertainty there. But these two forcings, we might call them, they're both important. Would you say that one of those is more in our control than the other? Absolutely. And that, I think, is the really important part here is global climate policy requires more coordination than we've been able to see uh, successfully implemented just yet. There are a lot of people whose hands are in that pot. But when we think about the urban heat island effect and, and regional climate, we have our hand on the dial. We can control through the measures that Lad was talking about, how much warming is happening as a result of the built environment. And in fact, some modeling studies suggest that if we have the right urban development strategy, not only can we avoid continued warming from the urban heat island effect, we can actually offset some of the warming coming our way from global scale climate change. So we can chip away at that problem, even with our regional adaptation or heat mitigation strategies. In fact, you and Violsa are partnered here in Maricopa County on the Bridging Climate Change and Public Health Strategic Planning Work Group. Violsa, talk about how that group formed and what its role and mission is going forward. We started in 2006 measuring how the heat is affecting human beings. And through our surveillance, we were able to show to our stakeholders in our community that this is becoming a problem, the people are being affected, and it became a public health issue. So that was one of the things that our data was able to show. As a result of that, in 2015, we were awarded the grant 
that would help us expand. And really, John, until 2015, we didn't have any funding. So in 2015, we got the funding from Public Health Institute. We gathered our stakeholders in the community, and we created this coalition, which is named Bridging Climate Change and Public Health. Last year, we had our fourth annual meeting with that group, and we are trying to move beyond heat. However, still a lot of things are going on with heat and air pollution, for that matter, because both of those are problem in our community. And on top of that, now COVID added, you know, so that made more difficult too. David, this group has been together since 2015. Like you said, Viola said it just had its fourth annual meeting. Mm. And now there's a formulation of what we want to see over the next three to five years. Talk about some of the highlights of that, both of you. I think one of the important roles that this initiative plays is just bringing together a community to talk about these issues. As Viola mentioned, uh, there's not a lot of funding for this work. And it's not necessarily a, a plea for more money to, to build things, although we absolutely need that. But right now, we just need people to think and talk about these issues. There are very few violsas out there. When we look across cities, there are very few folks who spend a lot of their time thinking about heat and related sustainability challenges, and that makes a big difference. So this group, which is largely volunteer-oriented that Vils is talking about, has provided a space to have some conversations about what we want to see moving forward. And some of the key themes that have emerged are similar to many strategic plans we'd see across all sorts of initiatives, having a unified communication strategy. There's been a group working to develop communication pillars and principles for us talking about climate-sensitive hazards, coordinating research. There's a lot of research out there about heat in Phoenix, heat in Arizona, impacts of heat on public health. We didn't really have it coordinated anywhere. So there's a breakout group that has been focused on coordinating research activities. And even just recognizing and elevating positive activities that are happening has been an important part of the strategic plan. The, the Bridging Climate Change and, and Health uh, Work Group launched a Celebrating Champions, Recognizing Champions initiative that's provided awards to community members and organizations who are demonstrating environmental stewardship, thinking about climate-sensitive hazards and so on. So I think the elements of our strategic plan are not unique to a strategic plan, but they're one of the first formulations of how to apply some of those principles to climate. Lad, honestly, I think this Bridging Climate Change and Public Health Strategic Planning Work Group was formed just so that the Maricopa area could catch up to Pima. <laughs> you guys have done a lot of work for a lot of years in Pima. There's probably been more almost cultural and natural affiliation with the idea of attacking the urban heat island, of making sure that rainwater is harvested. You guys have led the state and water recharge. Talk about the things that Pima County is really excelling at as it relates to heat and the other impacts of heat. Yeah, that's a fair point. I would say Maricopa County is certainly led on the health side and maybe the emergency management um, planning side. But you're right, Pima County for decades now has really led the way with some of those natural environment, water resource focused challenges. I think part of that is our history of being at the end of that Colorado River cap line. And so uh, we've been water scarce for quite a while <laughs> already. So it's kind of built into the DNA of the city. But I would say just recently, actually, the city of Tucson's mayor and council passed a green infrastructure tack on fee that is only above a certain amount of income for residents. So you can apply for a waiver if you're low income. And the idea is that um, our water system is so intrinsically connected as a whole system to the water that falls and kind of the vegetation. And like you mentioned, there's a widespread recognition here that 
the more vegetation we can support, the lower the temperatures are going to be. It's a feed that's connected to the water bill, but it's going in to promote more green infrastructure throughout the city of Tucson. And that's one of the first in the country of its kind. So that's pretty exciting to see. You've been involved in this area, lad, for, dare I say, decades? Yeah, I guess decades at this point, correct. <laughs> so from that decades-long perspective, if you had that really cool magic wand that was going to make immediate impact as it relates to heat and health, where would you be tapping that wand first? Oh, uh, that's a good question. I, I would say since I'm a planner, my answer is going to focus on plans. <laughs> and so if I had a magic wand, I would say we need to do a much better job of coordinating the planning that we do across all agencies. And so the idea here is that urban planners have a comprehensive plan that leads the development of a city to the future. So in the state of Arizona, we have comprehensive plans that are voter approved and they basically influence land development for the next 10 years once they're adopted. On the FEMA hazard mitigation side, we have FEMA hazard mitigation plans. And those plans are really important for whether a disaster happens and then also actions that go into mitigating disasters. And then on the public health side, we have public health plans. And increasingly, especially in Pima County and Maricopa County, we're including kind of climate change and climate impacts in those health plans. But we do a really abysmal job, and this is across the whole country, at getting those different groups and those different plans to actually talk to each other and work together. There's people that are focused on these things in all of those areas, but sometimes we're basically working against each other. And so we might be encouraging one kind of development in one place that if you talk to the public health folks would say that's a really vulnerable population, we should really be doing something different to help mitigate the heat that's in that area. And unless we get those groups together and talk together about these things, we'll kind of keep planning in different directions. And I think particularly with decreasing government resources to focus on these things, we're really going to have to be more efficient and kind of more cooperative with this. And Lad, as you look out across the country and the different places that you have worked besides in Arizona, do you see examples of that type of collaboration and coordination? Or is this something that everybody has to reinvent? Yeah, it's across the board. And one reason for that is that we don't have a good governance structure for heat in the United States. It's easier to explain what we have good governance structures for first. And so I would say if you look at flood risk, we have a national FEMA floodplain mapping system that has insurance tied to it. So every community has that FEMA floodplain map and those planners can kind of look at that and help encourage development away from those areas that have highest floodplain hazard. Many counties and larger cities have floodplain manager staff, so have complete staff that are dedicated to avoiding flood risk and things like that. If you look at extreme heat, we just don't have the same kind of legal or governance structure across the country. And so there's not necessarily like a extreme heat manager in different cities. My colleague Sarah Miro and I did a survey of cities on heat, and we found that only 6% of those cities that responded had anybody on staff that was even designated as the person to think about heat. And that's probably overrepresented over the actuality of across the country who's actually focused on extreme heat. I'd say the one place outside of Arizona that I've seen do a good job at this, and partly because they are larger and they do have more resources, is New York City actually does have a staff person that has a policy focus on extreme heat. And their job is entirely bringing together all of those different departments that are working on heat issues and making sure that they're moving in the same direction on that. Give another example of a good governance model, as Lad mentioned, one I've heard him talk about many times is air quality as well. We have 
national standards for what air quality. And if cities are not complying with those standards, they're at risk of losing considerable funding for transportation, other resources. And, and just echoing what Lad said, that, that we have a real absence of anything like that in the heat world. And we don't necessarily have the, the optimal model for what heat governance should be yet, but we're just taking baby steps right now in, in that direction. There's a lot of work that we need. We need to put our foot on the accelerator for figuring out what our national, state, local governance models should be for heat. An insurance market exists for flood risk. Hundreds of millions of dollars are in play for complying with air quality standards. And if we don't achieve our heat goals, there's a bad article in the newspaper. That's the mm-hmm. consequence right now. We need to do better. So there's still exactly. a magic wand on the table, David. Is that what you would wave yours for? I really want to wave that wand. But especially looking at some of the local headlines this year, I think I would wave my wand in the direction of let's fix some of our underlying social problems. If we could take care of poverty, hunger, homelessness, substance abuse, if, if we could take care of those four, if you have that wand, that would be fantastic. I think we could eliminate 75, 80% of our heat illness and, and death cases. There are certainly others that don't fit into those criteria. But when we look at the situation happening in downtown Phoenix right now, where we have folks camping on a hot parking lot, perhaps better than nothing, but that's not a good solution. The reason that we need cooling centers, and they can be valuable if they're kind of advertised appropriately and accessible to people. But the reason that our society needs cooling centers is kind of an admission that we don't have safe housing for people that has the safe thermal security that they should have in their own homes. And so I think that's a great point that our society as a whole is just not built to protect people from risks like heat. And I would say all climate risks as a whole, but particularly heat just because it is invisible and because those of us that do have air conditioning and don't get the same exposure to it don't necessarily feel it the same way in our daily lives. Fielsa, the wand is still on the table for you. Well, actually, I would like to come to the point where we have zero deaths. This is unacceptable, having so many people, as David mentioned, living in parking lots and not having main essential social needs met, that's something that we need to work on. We need to meet the people where they are and work with them, let them know how we can help them, showing them the ways how they can protect themselves. Vilsa, if Maricopa County had an extreme heat event that lasted, say, 10 to 14 days, temperatures over 115 degrees, through the data and the surveillance that you've done, could you almost predict where you might see adverse effects leading up to and including death? Yes, based on the data that we have so far, definitely they will be affected people in vulnerable areas where we don't have greenery, people that are homeless, people that don't have air conditioning. 40% of our deaths occur indoor. People still think that everyone has an air conditioning. Well, Still, there are neighborhoods in our community that don't have even air conditioning or any cooling system. Based on our surveys that we have done throughout the years, 15% in our community, even if they have air conditioning, they can't afford to have the air conditioning on night and day. With increasing temperatures, we don't have cooling temperatures during the night that they used to before. So definitely those are things that we need to keep thinking about. People may have the air conditioning. Some of them, they can't afford to pay for air conditioning or 
most of them, their air conditioning is broken and they can't even repair. People like to say that a virus doesn't discriminate. And yet with COVID, what we've seen is absolutely people of color, people living in poverty are absolutely suffering more. People might say the same thing about heat. Heat doesn't discriminate, but it absolutely does. Or if heat doesn't, then somebody is. Heat doesn't discriminate if you are hiking. However, really does discriminate toward people that low income, live in poverty, are homeless. Many people, they live in their cars. They don't have place to live. So I think the social aspect in our community has to be addressed. I agree with Vilsa that heat might be the most discriminatory killer when it comes to the patterns that we see, but what a messaging challenge it exposes. And, and I think there's an interesting example at the Grand Canyon where there are a number of heat illness cases every year, and there's a poster of a very fit, strapping man. The, the sign says something like, this person had heat exhaustion. Or, you know, e- even if you feel like you're Superman, you're still at risk. And, and what Vilsa said, you know, I, I agree with 100%, anybody can be hit by heat, but it tends to hit more often in certain communities or for people of certain characteristics, which is important for us to be aware of as part of the response and planning community, while also messaging that everybody is vulnerable in a, in a certain way. Lad, how do you reconcile sort of a top-down, central planning, general planning, comprehensive planning perspective with the real visceral realities of what's going on in the community and the inequities that are intrinsic to them? I would say it it has a little bit of a strange answer, but I would say we both need more hard science and data as one input for decision makers to consider. But then we also need to do a much better job of public participation, too. And those things are always at odds with each other in the planning world. But we don't have urban heat island maps for most cities in the United States. The ones that do have urban heat island maps, half the time the staff aren't trained to know how to use them correctly. And so there's other mapping techniques, too, that cities could have access to. Usually the cities that do have access to heat data that they can actually use are the ones like the University of Arizona has Tucson as its kind of home city. So we get a lot of attention here. And then up in the Phoenix metropolitan area, you have Arizona State University. But one of my concerns is there's thousands of communities across the country that don't have those institutions that are available to provide them with that data. So that's one area that we need to improve on. But then on the other hand, we've always done a really bad job, and this is kind of across the country again, at uh, inclusive government at the local level. And so public participation is something that we need to do a much better job of so that we have both the data, but then we're also actually listening to people and listening to their experiences when we do go through these land use changes and create the built environment of the future. So we need to listen to the residents of those neighborhoods and not just come and plop down a bunch of trees if that's not what they actually want and if that's not what they actually need. And I've seen a couple of projects where the outside folks trying to do good suggest trees to the neighborhoods and the residents instead beg for air conditioning, which was mentioned before. But for them, they don't want trees and they don't want shade. They actually want the air conditioning and kind of the means to pay for that air conditioning. And so I think listening to those communities and listening to what they actually need is really important. Also, there's a famous anecdotal story that gets told about the woman who goes to see her doctor, and the doctor says, you've got to take this blood pressure medicine to lower your blood pressure. And she said, if you really want to lower my blood pressure, you would pay my utility bill. That's what people are having a hard time. 
I think that's something that we need to address. This is what we, and I agree totally, we need to ask people what their needs are and meet them where they are and try to address their needs that way, work with them, educate them. We do have resources. We do have cooling centers in our county. Unfortunately, due to COVID, the number has dropped because of the isolation and so on. However, based on our surveys that we have done in the past, we find out that almost half of the people don't know where those cooling centers are or what the cooling centers are. So we need to really work with people and educate them, give them the tools. I agree, we need planning, we need research. Thanks God that we have people that they are working on those areas and so on. But we need more action. We need more solutions. Those are the things that they are most needed right now. And I think this education element can be a two-way street. And Lad, to go back to what you were saying about inclusive governance, learning what the perceived problems are and what the recommended solutions are by the residents who are experiencing this heat most severely every day, I think that's absolutely where I should be listening to. And we're really fortunate here in Maricopa County, thanks to support from the Vitalist Health Foundation, to engage in a project with the Nature Conservancy, the Maricopa County Department of Public Health, and community-based organizations that was called Nature's Cooling Systems, where we had the chance to sit down with residents because of dedicated funding that's not otherwise available, had the chance to sit down with residents in their neighborhood at a time that was convenient for them in literally their language, in the place where they're going all the time, and learn about hotspots in their community, cooling resources in their community. And just to give an example of this bi-directional education, we've been talking with cities around here about shading bus stops for many years, how to prioritize. We've had a lot of conversation about bus stops. And in one of these neighborhood workshops, residents consistently identified an intersection on the map and said, this is really the problem bus stop. We need something here. And in the back of my mind and a few of the other, quote, research experts, who have been engaged in this transit conversation, we knew there's no bus stop there. What's going on? There's some sort of mismatch. Well, it's because there's no official city bus stop there, but that's where the children congregate to get on the school bus, which just had not been part of the conversation thus far. So while there's absolutely broad public education that's needed about heat symptom recognition and so on, there's continuing education that needs to happen for the practicing and research and professional community as well about where the needs are in the community. And right now, as Lad was mentioning, we also mentioned, we just don't have the resources to have those conversations in as rich and consistent of a manner as we need to. It's really um, educating the community, but also educating ourselves and learning from the community. Really, Nature Conservancy Project showed that because it was amazing. In three different neighborhoods we worked, and those three different neighborhoods that they had solutions in different ways. And the solutions don't always sound like heat solutions. I remember one particular neighborhood, it was the timing of the intersection crossings. That was really perceived to be one of the big problems. Not something that's necessarily on the heat checklist that you're talking about, but of course it makes perfect sense once we we think about it. It's amazing what you learn when you ask. Uh, Absolutely. Lad, true or false? Heat is just a sunbelt or southwestern problem. Absolutely false. (laughs) And so we've certainly lived with it historically longer. And so people maybe outside of the Southwest see us as kind of the heat capital. And and actually, I'm sure all three of us get calls from people outside of this area, specifically because they kind of perceive that it's just a Southwest thing that we've dealt with for a long time. It's a different risk depending on where you are in the country. 
And so um, although we do have a higher adoption of air conditioning use, I would say there's certainly more concern in temperate cities, and those could be Portland, Oregon, through New York City, through Chicago, Illinois, that historically haven't had to have air conditioning. And as the temperatures continue to rise, both again due to urban heat island and to climate change, the threshold that was comfortable for is no longer the climate that people are living in. And so you're seeing places like New York basically having to do complete air conditioning adoption. And so I think it's a different type of risk, but that it's no longer just a Southwest risk at all. And that brings different challenges as these cities in different areas that haven't necessarily historically thought about it are having to focus on it for the first time. Yeah, you hear places like all the way up northern Maine, people are like, wow, we need air conditioning now. Yeah, exactly. And one thing I would want to mention is we have to make sure that as we look at ways, strategies, and experimenting on uh, strategies to increase our resilience to heat, that we don't do what's called maladaptation. So we want to make sure that we do evaluate those outcomes from those experiment projects, whether it's cooling pavement or whether it's low-income air conditioning assistance programs. We evaluate those outcomes to make sure that we're not actually contributing more to climate change. One thing that New York City is concerned about, and I've worked with them a little bit on extreme heat, is that as they try to provide low-income assistance for air conditioning, they are also trying to meet a net zero carbon goal in the future. And those two things don't necessarily go together because for equity reasons, you want the lower income populations that don't have air conditioning right now to have access to them. But as you make air conditioning more widespread in New York City, you're going to increase your greenhouse gas emissions. And so what they're trying to do is also build in older apartment building kind of retrofits to make them more energy efficient so that they can drive down those carbon emissions. I think a lot of the strategies that cities may take for heat mitigation, if we're not careful, may actually end up contributing more to the problem. Not to mention the exasperating realization that every air conditioner pushing cool air into a dwelling is pushing hot air out into the environment, right? Exactly. Vielsa, true or false? Heat issues are different than air issues, water issues, socioeconomic issues, education, food, or health. It's false. So false. So false. No, it's not. I mean, all of them, they go together. How do you think about health through all those lenses and then bring it back into heat? If social issues are resolved, we can overcome easier. I'm not saying that only social issues, they play a role, but definitely we can overcome them if social issues are better. Dave, you might notice a pattern here. True or false? We have all the answers when it comes to climate change and heat. Are there any lifelines available? (laughs) (laughs) The answer is absolutely false. We have a lot of learning to do, both as an academic community. I come as a humble academic. We are searching for answers. I think the public is searching for answers. Our colleagues in the health profession are searching for answers. But that doesn't mean we're completely ignorant or clueless right now. We have some ideas about some strategies that are effective, both for protecting people from health and addressing climate concerns, whether it's your choice of travel mode to get from one destination to another, choice to check in on a neighbor on a hot day to see how they're doing. We know that there are simple measures that can be effective, both in the adaptation side, coping with our climate challenges, and the mitigation side, reducing our climate challenges. Lad, Eric Klinenberg studied Chicago's heat wave of 1995, 700 people dead in five days. And he found that the number one determinant of whether somebody lived or died was whether or not they were alone. After he published that study called Heat Wave, he went on to publish Palaces for the People with the idea that we should be able to create an infrastructure, both in terms of built environment and social infrastructure, that would prevent these types of deaths. 
What's your take on Klinenberg's work and how does it weave into the things that you're doing today? He did a great job of highlighting the issue of that Chicago heat wave that you referenced and bringing it to the forefront in very stark terms of how discriminatory those heat deaths were during that event. And I think he did absolutely lay out some solutions that unfortunately were largely ignored across the country. And so, again, I'm not sure why it's taken up to this point in history. And again, referring back to the fact that we've known that cities are hotter than the surrounding countryside over 100 years now. And then even after that Chicago disaster, still the last couple of years that cities, both on the research side and the practitioner side, have really started to wake up to the fact that heat has detrimental impacts and we need to find those strategies and solutions to deal with it better. And so it's a little bit of a lost opportunity that we didn't start making those changes immediately after he published that book and um, kind of brought some of those challenges to light. So David, here we are in the midst of a pandemic, rolling into the hot season here in Arizona, which everybody had hoped might actually diminish the impact of the virus. It's very clear that's not happening. How do we address heat during a COVID-19 pandemic? And what's been troubling to see is that some of our common strategies for responding to heat are impacted by the coronavirus. And the one that comes to mind most clearly for me and, and many others that I'm reading about is cooling centers, where we've been very proud to have a rich network of public facilities that are available uh, for congregating in during hot weather. Well, congregating is not a recommended activity right now. And in fact, many of the public buildings that serve as cooling centers are not even open at this time. So we've seen a considerable reduction in the capacity of our regional heat relief network because of coronavirus. Those facilities that are open now have uh, extra resources dedicated to health screening when folks come in, providing distancing. It, it's a, a more expensive and intense operation to have a COVID-ready cooling center. So the downside is that our capacity has been reduced. The upside is that we're having a lot of conversations about how to do this work that we were never having before. There's been a weekly phone call that's been stood up to allow the cities to talk to one another, to exchange best practices, ideas. And, and we're hearing evolution from one week to the next, how cities are thinking about different issues can we handle and distribute water bottles or not? Uh, maybe we weren't so sure about this before, but now we've got it figured out how to do that. So while I'm troubled and worried, like many of my colleagues, about what the heat impacts will be because of coronavirus, also encouraged to see perhaps some innovation catalyzed by these difficult circumstances. Bielsa, are you part of those calls? Yes, I am part of those calls, and I'm very proud, really. It has been amazing. Not only those calls, but we also have now another group that is working on cooling centers more in finding what type of cooling centers people are coming up with in different cities, as David mentioned. So it has been incredible, all the collaboration that is going on and innovation in that sense. What's your favorite innovation you've heard on the call? I heard these pop-up cooling centers. I was interested, what are they and how they look? It seems like they are covered areas with both sides, I think, mentioned that they are open, providing water and so on. The other great one in my neighborhood that I found, they took the hose and they were providing water to people that they were passing refreshment with the hose. So I think everyone in their own way is trying to to do things. You know, Lad mentioned earlier the fact that cooling centers are at admission of sorts that our housing stock is not where it needs to be from a heat protection standpoint. And we're really going to see the quality of the housing stock come under the microscope mm -hmm. this summer. Zillow right now says, as they try to sell yeah. homes, home is more important than ever. And I think that's going to be true from a public health perspective as well. We're encouraged to stay at home, but 
not everybody's home is adequate for providing cooling relief during the summer. So I think the point that Lad raised before is, is really going to be magnified this summer. And I think we're going to have, unfortunately, some hard lessons to learn. Thank you, Viola. Thank you, Lad. And thank you, David. We are lucky to have the three of you, as well as many dedicated practitioners, volunteers, and community members focusing on heat and its impacts. In just two weeks, we'll be back with part two of this discussion, grounded in actions that are happening today to help increase our community's capacities for heat resilience and heat adaptation. Between now and then, it's important for all of us to reflect on the fact that the same root causes surfaced in this discussion that are also recognized as keys when it comes to COVID and race. They can be summed up by the word inequity. As David suggested, perhaps 75 to 85% of heat-related deaths could be avoided if we could face up to and meaningfully address social and health inequities. As Viola said, heat doesn't discriminate when two people stand side by side with similar resources. However, when some live comfortably in air-conditioned homes while others live in their cars or in tents in a downtown parking lot, heat will discriminate. If we truly want solutions, we have to come face to face with these realities. Speaking of which, our pandemic reality is more pressing than ever before, which is why our COVID-19 roundtable will return again next week. In the meantime, don't hesitate to delve into our back catalog of episodes, like our recent statewide food systems discussion, our affordable housing episode, our storytelling episode, and our twice-monthly COVID-19 roundtable updates. There is so much more to explore related to community health and well-being among our nearly three dozen episodes so far, including guests from across the state and national experts too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org slash podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in your place of business, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released, or listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you would listen to your favorite music on Spotify. In the world of podcasts, you can give us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overdrive, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.